Hi, my name is Pete Scazzaro. I want to welcome you today to the Emotionally Healthy Leader Podcast. Our title today is Ask Pete Anything, Questions and Answers on Emotionally Healthy Spirituality. Now, we've just finished a series on the eight to nine core themes of Emotionally Healthy Spirituality found in both the book and the course uh, with its name on it. And I've been asking you as listeners over the last few weeks to send in questions and answers that's, that have surfaced for you as you've listened to these podcasts and or as you have been implementing uh, emotionally healthy spirituality into your personal life, into your ministry, into your leadership. Now, two reasons for this. One is that uh, you know getting into the themes or topics of EHS is uh, it's like an iceberg. In other words, you, you, you see one-tenth of it above the surface, but actually there's seven-eighths below. Ernest Hemingway noted this in, in writing when you read a book, a really good book anyway, that one-eighth of what's on the page is what you see, but there's seven-eighths below which never got on the page. And we read or we listen or we take in new content, uh, often as leaders, very quickly. We consume it. Uh, we analyze it. We dissect it. Then we spew it out. Really, our prayer and my hope for you is that as you engage uh, these themes uh, of EH discipleship, that you'll re- you'll engage them prayerfully, thoughtfully, reflectively. You'll let the material, in a sense, read you and dissect you, transform you. And so, if you're a regular li- regular listener, you know I'm always trying to get you engaged more deeply into the into the course, into the workbooks, so the material actually intersects with your life. And again, just go to emotionallyhealthy.org slash preview, uh, get a taste of what I'm talking about in the course uh, with, you'll see some videos and a workbook. It's all free. Check it out. Do it for your personal life. Again, uh, my hope and prayer is that you'll get beneath the surface of the material, not just above the surface. But then secondly, this Q&A is so important uh, because as Martin Buber has said so well, all real life is meeting. In other words, it's a live encounter. It's it's a dialogue. It's personal. And, and when we get the questions and answers from me as the person delivering this podcast, it is it's life. It's it's a joy. It's an enormous joy and consolation for me uh, to have gotten so many questions from you on so many various angles or applications of the things we talk about here in the podcast. And I've received so many excellent questions. Uh, I will surely do this again. I didn't get to, I'm not going to get to even close to half the questions I received, uh, but just feel free to be sending in questions to askpete at emotionallyhealthy.org uh, along the way. And I'm going to be accumulating them. I read all of them. I put them into categories um, and uh, I'm going to save them for the next time. So again, thank you so much for doing that. So as I'm going to begin going to go into this podcast, uh, I, this was framed specifically around the eight, eight core themes of EH, EH spirituality. Um, the problem of emotionally unhealthy spirituality. We talked about know yourself that you may know God, go back to go forward, journeying through the wall, enlarging your soul through grief and loss, the rhythms of the daily office and Sabbath, growing into an emotionally mature adult, and going the next step to develop a rule of life. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to take about five to eight uh, larger questions around these themes, and then I'm going to move to shorter, quick questions, quick answers, at least questions that are, I can give a, a kind of a shorter answer to, and I'll try to get to 10 to 15 of those. So we'll see how we go with time, but let's begin by taking some of the larger ones as we launch into this podcast. 
Question one is, sometimes I have trouble distinguishing walls from trials in my life. Uh, the curriculum does note the differences, but it seems to get murky at times in my life and ministry. In your life and ministry, do you have any specific examples of how you've been able to distinguish the two? And has that made any difference how you process each emotionally and contemplatively? Well, again, trials are, uh, you know, James 1 uh, says, you know, rejoice when you, you know, experience trials. They come in you know, of many kinds. Uh, and car- trials are, are, are things like, you know, my car battery dies or an unexpected traffic jam or a hurtful comment by a neighbor. Uh, but a wall is, is something w- much larger. Uh, it's when everything inside of you wants to quit. It, it's a it's a long a uh, long, uh, dark night of the soul, as, as we call it. So l- let me give you an example. You know, for me, I've had, again, I've had five or six large walls in my life. And it's interesting because recently uh, I received uh, a letter or an email from uh, a person that was involved in my most recent wall. And uh, it was it was amazing. So it got me back into looking at some of the details of what happened Uh it happened actually in 2012, and and uh, I'll just what happened was very simply this: I was in the middle of transition of uh, stepping down from being lead pastor at New Life Fellowship after 26 years. We were one year away from me handing it over to my successor, uh, and I a letter was sent to uh, the board and a couple of other leaders, and to me from a person that we had mentored and known for a number of years uh, in leadership, and. Um, coming clearly out of a place of profound hurt in which uh, you know, three, four pages of single-spaced accusations were made against me uh, and some, a few against Jerry, but mostly against me. And basically for being a control freak and running the church kind of like the mafia and trampling on bodies and et cetera. And this person had gone back to talk with uh, folks that either I had let go uh, from leadership over the previous, you know, two decades, two and a half decades, um, and, you know, folks who weren't necessarily excited about some of the directions I'd taken the church over those decades. Anyway, he put this all together in a very long email, um, or long letter to our board, and it was just devastating. I mean, it was so it was so devastating for me when I received it. It took, came out of nowhere because he had never spoken to me uh, personally or directly about it, and we'd worked together for a number of years. He was a volunteer, but he wasn't significant leadership. Um, I, I, and so when this went to the board, I, you know, I was so, uh, what's the word? I was, I was shattered because you always want to look at, you know, I always want to look at where is there some truth in this? And I realized if, if 10% of this is true, if 20% of this is true, I need to resign immediately because of the depth of my own blind spots. And I remember, um, you know, trying to, of course, talk to him when his first came out to no avail. And, uh, you know, she said, you'll, uh, oh, Pete, I know you shoot. You're, you shoot all the prophets, you know. And it was just one of those situations where I, it was a no. It was a no win. And I remember going to the board and saying, "Listen, you need to evaluate these accusations against me. And if you think that you know some of this is true, then I'll resign." I mean, here I was after again. I was in my twenty sixth, going into my twenty sixth year, about to hand the church over after a, uh, you know, we were in a four year transition process. And I was ready to just resign, uh, and I felt I needed to resign if my character was that out of line. 
but it was just so I remember being outside that board meeting uh, for well over an hour as they spoke and realizing, okay, everything's about to, to end. But that the hurt and wound and sense of betrayal was very profound. Um, it lasted a couple of years. Uh, the wound, the struggle to forgive, uh, to let go, I, I, it was just, it was large. And so, um, boy, I, I didn't, I didn't think I would get up from that one. And I remember standing at the, um, at the final day of where I was handing the church over, uh, and laying hands on the person to succeed me rich. And, uh, and I just remember saying to myself, people have no idea of the price to get here. I mean, I mean, it clearly put something to death inside of me, uh, which was a good thing, but it was, it was an excruciating process. So that was a wall. And it was interesting because I got a letter here now uh, 10 years later uh, from this fellow who wrote the letter asking my forgiveness. And, uh, you know, of course, my, my, my first reaction was, for what? For what? Be specific. You know, do you have any idea what you've done? Um, I had forgiven him, so that wasn't the issue. Um, but it was interesting how it did take me back to look at it all and, and the depth of the pain. That's a wall. A wall is when everything in you wants to quit. I mean, you really don't know if you're going to make it. You're like, God, how could you have done this? Kind of like Jesus on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Um, it, that, that's a wall. And again, I, you can only go through so many of those in your life uh, to survive. And I think God knows that, how, much, how many he can entrust to you. Um, but they are deeply transformative moments. My five to six in my life were changed, my, they changed me just in ways that, no other way could God have pulled out of me some things he pulled out of me that needed to be pulled out, deep weeds. And does it, you know, the question here is, did I process these differently? And it, of course, uh, therapy, mentors, I mean, I, I had to get all kinds of counsel from not just the board and good friends and mentors, but therapists, spiritual directors. I mean, I, uh, I, I need to take a lot of time. I, I remember digging into the cross uh, the crucifixion of Jesus, his downward journey, uh, and meditating on that, those large segments in Scripture on a way that I'd never meditated on them before. Uh, and my task was to stay with Jesus and to listen to him in, in the process, even though uh, my feelings were shot and everything in me again wanted to just quit. So uh, I don't think when you're at a wall— uh, and if, if, if a situation grows into becoming a wall, believe me, you will know it. Uh, you will know it. And again, I always recommend people read uh, John of the Cross's Dark Night of the Soul because it's so, so helpful in times like that. So question two, how do you handle the defensiveness of leaders who feel like emotionally healthy discipleship is an indictment on modern evangelicalism? Well, I, I don't like the word indictment, but I appreciate you put it in quotation marks. Uh, I, I, it doesn't take great discernment uh, for people to see that the church is in a crisis uh, right now. I mean, it's it's everywhere. You, everything from people leaving the church, especially our, the younger generation, to scandals in church leadership that are unceasing, to the shifting culture in which we live in that uh, that requires a level of discipleship that you just can't get away with just filling a, a stadium full of people or a crowd full of people. I mean... Uh, focusing on simply external change is not going to cut it. I mean, just the issues around sexuality and gender, 
Uh, I mean, some of our churches, we can barely talk about feelings, let alone get into those profound issues with people, and let alone the pandemic and globalization. So, you know, our approach in EH discipleship is to be deeply theological and biblical and grounded in, you know, church history, but uh, grounded in clear biblical themes like, you know, being and doing and uh, Jesus being fully God and fully human, and we're fully human, and, and uh you know, we're pointing out the Westernisms in our Christianity, the, the, our, our particular blind spots uh, in the 21st century. Uh, you know, these aren't new temptations, but they're really acute and large in the Western church in particular. And, uh, you know, we see them all in the temptations of Jesus. They're universal. But uh, I, 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 when people are being defensive about, you know, this is a, you know, in a sense we're, we're pointing out very large blind spots uh, it's because we love the church and uh, we love the mission of Jesus in the world. And uh, these are moments of responding to the renewal moments to to go deeper and larger into our the way that we're leading uh, for Jesus and the way that we're mentoring and discipling people in our churches. Uh, I see this as an opportunity uh, more than an indictment. I see the Holy Spirit calling the church globally to a to a fresh um, encounter with him around the area of discipleship and leadership formation. It's just that EH discipleship is a is not a program. It's a large answer to a large problem, and it does require a lot. It is disorienting, uh, especially initially as you kind of get into this ecosystem and operating system because it's opening up all these areas that we've not thought about very often in the church. And so that's why I want always say to people, go slowly and, and uh, you know take one step at a time, first for you and then your team and then the, the wider church. All right. Next question. When dealing with journeying through the wall, I've asked God for things to happen which did not happen. Can you talk through the difference between persistent faith and asking God for something and then straying into the name it, claim it territory? My wife tells me at times that I don't have enough faith because I won't claim the desired outcome. Uh, so as I type out this question, I think I can see where you would take this, but I, I will let God work through you and not assume uh, you know, I, I, I think so much of our prayer life, I know mine was before I got into this journey was name it and claim it. I, I didn't, wouldn't say I was on the extreme of name it and claim it, but a lot of it was exerting my will of things I wanted to happen. I just, I, I, I wasn't very much into the surrender of my will to God's will. I was in a general sense, but not very specific. Uh, I had a lot of agendas, things I needed God to do uh, like now. And so, yeah, I would say that um, a real core to what we're talking about here is surrendering ourselves to the river. Uh, if you could picture God's will as a river that's flowing by the Holy Spirit, uh, our role is to flow with that river and do what the Father is doing. And the most important work we do as leaders and as followers of Jesus is listen to him and follow him wherever he leads. Um I, the thing about not having enough faith uh, to get the desired outcome, that puts way too much um, responsibility on us. Now, faith, of course, does move mountains, absolutely. But what is faith? Faith is hanging in there. Uh, it's a mustard seed that moves a mountain. And, you know, I believe, help my unbelief is one of the great prayers in Scripture. And, uh, you know, as it was said to Jesus, um, as he came down from the Mount of uh, Transfiguration. Uh, but the, the real core of the transition that we're inviting you to and calling you to is uh, 
is dying so you might rise again. It, it's this it's this counterintuitive following of Jesus whose ways are way higher than our ways, and we surrender to him. And uh, so we're, we're, we're trusting him for great things and a great move of uh, his in the world, but it's not going to come the way we think. Uh, and uh, God is sure not your assistant nor mine. Uh, we're his servants, or I love Paul's word, he's a slave of Christ Jesus, completely at his disposal uh, wherever he wants to go. I love that. You know, Paul, a slave of Christ Jesus, Romans 1.1. 1, 1. And that's how I think we were to see ourselves. He is not our slave, we're his, because we we're love slaves because he's loved us first. Okay, next question. Uh, my question is, how do you find faith and hope in seasons of prolonged disappointment and pain? It's been eight to nine years of dealing with moral failures and leadership, rejection and opposition, job loss, and then finally, uh, job loss, major health issues, conflict, open, closed doors to me as a woman uh, in leadership, family issues and betrayal. I've repented of everything I can think of, and I find myself hopeless. Now, I know God uses tests to mold us in the image of his son, and I want to be a person of character, but sometimes I wonder if there's anything good coming in this life. Uh, I don't want to be in survival mode. I feel like I can't handle one more disappointment. A spiritual leader told me uh, to manage my expectations. When I express anger or confusion, other leaders have told me they've never been in a situation where prayer didn't change things. Others have said, I will make God angry and he will send something worse or allow something worse. Uh, I refuse to be anything but honest with God, uh, et cetera, et cetera. So, Excellent question. Thank you so much. Well, you are clearly at a wall. And of course, uh, all I can think of was, was two things. One is Job, as you're, as I was reading your, your question. You know, Job's friends torturing him with wrong application of Scripture. If you read the book of Job, what's so fascinating about it is uh, the bulk of the book, 35 chapters, is Job and his three friends in this dialogue. But the three friends are religious, uh, and they're quoting the Bible, but they're torturing uh, Job with misapplied truth. And uh, you know, they get rebuked by God at the end, and Job ends up praying for them. And uh, and I would argue that your friends are misapplying truth here. By any, there's a lot of mystery in what how God works and why he works the way he does. And so I would invite you, um, one, to stay with Jesus like Job did in the midst of your, you know, your, your, your dark night. And it's clearly a dark night. I, I don't know why God's entrusting this to you. Uh, but I do know that God is good and God is for you. And if God be for us, who can be against us? Even when it seems like everything is not. And this is the place where where real genuine faith does develop, where we trust God even when we can't see anything. It's really truly Jesus on the cross um, in Gethsemane. I think of Mother Teresa who spent 50 years in her dark night of the soul, uh, 50 years, uh, and I'm not wishing that on anybody. Um and I don't have an easy answer for you, uh, but to invite you to do what I've done, what Scripture I believe invites us to, which is to persevere in Him when uh, there are no feelings, um, and to follow Him, trusting that God is doing a profound work in you and will do a profound work through you, even if we can't always see it this side of heaven. But there are, I believe, no exceptions every follower of Jesus will confront walls, some larger, some smaller. And as John of the Cross wrote, there are certain few individuals who seem in life to be a given or entrusted 
great walls, uh, a suffering that seems just far beyond most. And his argument is that it's because God has enormous revelation of himself to offer them as well as in them. Um, I, I don't know if you're one of those people, but I just, uh, I bless you and you can trust God for the grace to stay in there. Um, and I would encourage you to do what I know I've done, which is uh, look to Jesus and read, meditate on those scriptures of Jesus uh, and his own path towards the cross and on the cross. Mm-hmm. They're very illuminating in times like this. Oh, Lord, time is flying. Um, all right, this next fellow is a is in the marketplace, and this is a great example of when you're mentoring and someone in, in your own, would be someone you're leading comes to you because uh, it's such a good example of the kind of, I think, spiritual direction questions that are coming to us in hallways uh, or after services or on the phone or in emails all the time. Uh, or you may be a marketplace leader. This is this is actually applies to you as well. This fellow writes, the organization I work for uh, is struggling with the great resignation. That is, uh, this is the hardest stretch, stretch in the 10 years I've been here that uh, so many people have left, uh, you know, his employment, the employment of his, uh, he's working in um, accounting in a large firm. He goes, now we have large, lots of untrained staff, and yet we're con- expected to deliver a level of quality uh, that's as if we had trained staff. I've raised the issue um, to the leadership, but I've been told to be quiet. The firm's not addressing it. We're massively profitable, and especially since the pandemic began, and so we can't turn down any work, says the leadership. We have to do whatever on our plate. It's very painful. The situation is very complex. I know the rules. We make a lot of money for the firm, but I am effectively an it from the firm's perspective. And I feel like as well, my shadow contributes to this problem that I'm facing. The place doesn't respect boundaries. It demands more and more. Is this a dark night? Is it a wall? Is it my shadow? Is it all of them? Uh, and the answer is yes, yes, it's probably all of them. But for you, it is a moment of, uh, it's a gift. What's happening, I know you can't see it right now as that, but it's a transformative moment for you in your journey with God to really become the person whom God's uniquely made you to be. All this pressure is forcing a diamond to come forth. This really is about who are you? How has God uniquely made you? What's, what's his unique imprint of his image in you in particular? So much is coming at you at once. So what I just want to invite you into a multifaceted approach to this. And uh, this is going to take time. This is going to be slow. Um, you, you need, uh, one, to be listening to yourself. You're, you, it sounds like you've, really, you're, uh, you've begun that journey. Uh, your consolations, your desolations this is a very key moment to be feeling before God. I'd encourage you to get yourself a, a spiritual director for sure about consolations and desolations. But as you mentioned, it, it's there's some shadow in there too uh, for you. And I don't know the specifics. I don't know you, but it would be well worth uh, having a therapist as well. I would look for some. I would look for a good counselor. I'd look for some a good mentors as well. Um, to get wise counsel. So you're journaling, you're getting wise counsel, you're looking for people who have been there before you. Um, but I, I want to get you set up for the long haul here as you walk through this. Again, God's coming to you. Uh, your, your, your accounting firm is not evil, um, but God is coming to you because he loves you. I think of Daniel and Babylon. Uh, there is a purpose for you being there. Now, what's God calling you to do? Uh, stay, go, you know, timing, 
but for sure, who is he calling you to be uh, in the midst of that right now? That's the core question. And uh, you want to let the Holy Spirit have ample space, open up some, you know, bust down some walls that maybe you've had God in some boxes and open you up uh, for some deep transformative work. So I'm actually quite excited for you and what God will have for you. Okay, let me let me move on here to uh, I, <laughs> let me do some of the some of the quicker questions. Oh, this isn't a quicker question. I, I got a number of questions about um, uh, being and doing, um, uh, or just even reframing some stuff. I one comes from 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 a missionary team working with Muslims somewhere in the world, and uh, right, right, we're like our team is going through horrendous times. We feel like we're in a spiritual attack as we preach the gospel and do our work. And so they've got a number of issues they lay out to me, transparency, accountability, um, what does that look like? Uh, some people are uncomfortable with discipline and restoration, et cetera. Uh, I know we have a lot to learn. This has been a humbling time. I would just reframe it to you for just a moment. I, I would like to invite you to say, God, I, I'm not sure this is an attack from the evil one. Uh, it may be that this is God uh, getting your attention, that there are some foundational cracks uh, in your own formation and leadership as a team. Uh, you're in the pressure cooker. Leadership is a crucible. It's a fire. It's a, it reveals cracks in our inner life like nothing else. And it uh, sounds like you're in a very high-intensity uh, missional situation, uh, so this is an invitation, I believe, from God for you to get re-equipped for the next phase. Uh, so I really want to encourage you in particular to get a hold of uh, the Emotionally Healthy Discipleship Course Expanded Edition, and you want to do that as your team. Get through, Go through that uh, as a just as a pilot for your own learning growth, and let it take you into some new areas of leading from a deep inner life with God. You clearly need some skills relationally as well, which is the Emotionally Healthy Relationships Course. Uh, but there's a lot here uh, that you've opened up that I would encourage you to hear the invitation of God to go the next uh, level or place of maturity as a team. Okay, um, Sabbath, I, I've been a senior pastor for 10 years. I've read your book, done the course, listened to your podcast. My question is, how do I take a Sabbath without my leadership team sabotaging sabotaging it or my wife. I've spoken up to them, but uh, they only give lip service to it. I, some people, and my wife especially, uh, acts like I'm showing weakness by needing rest. When I take a day off, I still get phone calls. And my wife still brings me church issues that she wants me to solve. I try best not to answer the phone, uh, and but I'm beginning to get resentful. I feel my needs are unimportant. And everybody just wants something from for me. Um, so I'd really appreciate any advice on how you would set and enforce boundaries with the people closest to me and how to rest alone if that's the only choice. I know this is not a healthy lifestyle, and one day I'm going to crack. Uh, so, wow, thank you so much. Um, there's a lot going on in this question as well. So uh, there's issues of differentiation. Uh, your own differentiation, not losing yourself to everybody around you. Um, you are the lead pastor of the church. So in some that your, your calling is to set the culture, is to help develop a culture based on scripture. Um, and so the, talking about setting rhythms, you breaking through to set those rhythms first, 
uh, is the most important thing. So, um, uh, you know, so you you want to figure out a way to say in an elegant way, um, you know, you've, you've clearly taught on it uh, that you're going to be taking a day to have a Sabbath of the Lord your God and um, uh, actually do it. So you you clearly need some support, maybe some help on how to articulate that. But there is a marriage issue going on here, which you've spoken of so eloquently. And and I really want to encourage you that in, uh, it's so worth for you and your uh, wife to talk with someone um, for you and for her and for the marriage. Uh, clearly, to, you're at a tension point. You need, you need an outside person to, to help you break through this. And listen, Jerry and I have had... Pr- People help us break through issues, um, and that's nothing to be ashamed of. It's part of why we're, we live in community, and the community doesn't have to be your, only your local church. We live in a worldwide community of God's people, and there are folks mature and gifted who can help you break through that, and I would encourage you to do it. In some ways, the Sabbath issue uh, is, the, is only the surface issue of probably larger issues for you and for her and your relationship. And so, again, I, I see gifts in there for you and your marriage and your family and your church. Your struggle represents uh, the struggle for so many people. There are powers of principalities that do not want you to get a balance and a rhythm and lead out of a cup that overflows. So again, the Sabbath issue is, is a big one. All right, since time is getting away from us, everyone, let me just take three or four uh, shorter questions before we close. I'd love to hear, Pete, how you allow how you allow people to make bad choices not sinful while still remaining beside them and loving them especially family speaking mainly in the context of caregiving when people should do something to take better care of themselves but they choose to do what they want despite your advice and i would say to you that that is your work um think of it that's what god does with all of us jesus did clearly with the 12 we have to, we, we, we love people enough to let them have their journey. Uh, and we wait until the moment comes that they're open. And uh, especially in these kind of situations, you've given advice. Uh, hopefully, hopefully they asked you for it. And uh, they're making choices. You can see where it's going to go, but you're able to be patient uh, and stay with them, just like God stays with us and love them in the process. So I'd say that's more your God's invitation to you to let go uh than it is about them at this point. Dear sir, uh, what do I do when I'm dealing with a difficult member who drains energy and is a persistent attention seeker? I would say that you want to get counsel and perspective, perhaps from another mature team member that works with you, uh, in getting perspective on the person and recognizing your limits as a local uh, congregation. And that person, depending on the level of difficulty, is it a you know, is it a DSM-5 issue, uh, how the, that person needs to be perhaps boundaried within a local church. Um, and how do, it's, it's, these are very difficult issues. It needs time, prayer, and thoughtfulness uh, because uh, you're not a mental health facility either. Uh, so get some counsel and perspective. Uh, and then the second question from the same person is, how do I, how do, what about assigning a job to someone who has a I-know-it-all attitude? And my answer to you, if they have a know-it-all attitude, do not assign a job for them in the church because a lack of teachability, pride, uh, is not uh, not the character quality you want in someone uh, having a role in the name of Jesus. 
uh, how am I how am I picking up something is off in the use of power in your team or in other leaders? I think the issue of power is one we're always aware of. How am I wielding it? How are people wielding it? Uh, it's got to be done in service of people. So it's not, you know, there's some principles, of course, in the Emotionally Healthy Leader book about power and dual relationships and wise boundaries. But more importantly, it's, it's, this, it's this awareness of how you're wielding power in particular. Uh, and I thought of myself, think of myself as a, doing this podcast or as a senior leader, how careful uh, I want to be with it, especially when I'm talking with folks who look at my age and my history or whatever, and they project onto me all kinds of uh, things that are not true. And so I have to be very careful when I ask people to do things, um, depending on their culture. I think of certain, say, Indonesians or Filipinos or folks from an Asian culture with really respects elderly people and folks with experience and titles and all that. Uh, I'm very careful on how I wield my power. So I think it's something you're always aware of because I want use my power to come under people uh, as Jesus taught, not over people. So Thank you so much. Uh, and as we close here, let me invite you to go check out uh, emotionallyhealthy.org slash preview uh, and check out the uh, the materials of the Emotionally Healthy Discipleship course. Check out section one. It's all free there, the videos, the workbook, and uh, get a taste, dive in. Uh, and I look forward to doing this again with you soon. It's been a great joy, but I must admit, I have six pages of questions here and I already cut out six pages and I only got through three of them. So I look forward to doing it again with you all soon. God bless you. Have a great day.